The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good evening again, everybody. Take your Bibles, please, and uh, we'll go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read a couple of verses in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, we'll read a couple of verses as well. We'll read from verse 18 down to 21 of 1 Corinthians 1, and then we'll read from verse 10 to verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 2. All right, here we go. The Word of God says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews seek for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we'll look over then at chapter 2 and verse 10 down to verse number 16. Again, the Word of God says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray before we begin, shall we? As we begin. Loving Father, we come before you again, and we open the word of God, your word. Your word which you inspired the Holy Spirit to, for men to write that we might have your very words. And Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that it is through Christ that we can know you and knowing you is having eternal life. Father, we give you thanks and we ask you, Lord, for your help this evening as we would look at this great topic of just the greatness of God, the incomprehensibility of who you are. And Father, we ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We've been looking at the attributes of God for the last couple of months in the evenings, and I was looking again, just doing some research and reading again this week, and I came across something that we haven't looked at, and it's not strictly speaking an attribute of God, but it's something that comes up almost immediately as we look at who God is and the incomprehensibility of God or the attributes of God, and that is the fact that God is incomprehensible. Now, that sounds really discouraging, and trust it for a pastor to stand up and preach for 45 minutes on something that's incomprehensible to everybody, and you wonder if when we all walk out of here, we're all going to be completely confused. And my hope and prayer is you will not. For one thing, we have to understand what incomprehensibility means when we talk about God, and it doesn't mean that God cannot be known. What it means, and I want you to hang on this in the back of your mind as we go through this, is that God cannot be fully known. But God can be known. So we'll unpack a little bit more of that later on. But first of all, we've got to remember a couple of things. Number one, God created man in his own image, in his moral likeness. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 talks about how God has made man upright. That means his moral likeness is like that of God. Man was created with both a reasoning and an immortal soul and spirit. And Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 talks about how when we die, our body goes into the dust of the ground, but our spirit returns to be with God. Man was given knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. In the Garden of Eden, man had everything he needed to be able to relate to God. There was a holiness of his stature there in the Garden. Man had the law of God written on his heart in the sense that he had a conscience. The very fact that Eve could sit there and say yes and she could recount the law back to the Satan or the serpent proves that fact. Man enjoyed fellowship and communion with God in the garden, but only because of God's grace. Even though man was a creature, even though he had that holiness of stature, it was still God's grace that they enjoyed a fellowship. But I'm convinced... Uh, you, you can't talk me out of this. I'm convinced that Adam and Eve in the garden, as God walked in the cool of the day with them, they walked and talked with God. There was a relationship. There was a fellowship there between them. Man had the incalculable privilege of knowing God in intimate communion. But we know the story. Man sinned tragically and terribly and rebelliously, and he was cut off from fellowship with God. Man was like God in moral likeness, but now man is unlike God. Everything has been changed. Everything has been upset. We use the word fall to explain that change in man's character. He's, he's gained a sin nature, and now he's no longer able to have communion with God. The only way man and God can have communion is through a mediator, through a sacrifice, through bloodshed, and so on. Now, I want you to just hang on a second. We're going to look at... The character of God, but I want to do is I want to give you God's character and how man is completely opposite to it. And it's really important to understand just how far we have fallen and just how great God is and how unlike we are to God. So first of all, we would say that God is spirit. Jesus talking to the woman at the well said that God is spirit. But we are flesh and blood. We're body and soul spirit, but we're not the same as God in that sense of spirit. God is infinite. But we are very finite. We're limited to a singular time and space. Some of us are more finite than others, and some of us are a little less finite. We've got more uh, padding and bulk, but we're all finite in comparison to God's infiniteness. God is unchangeable. 
And yet you and I are in a constant, never-ending process from the moment we're born to the moment we die. We're, we're changing. And even if you like, after we die, we're still changing because our bodies go into the ground and they begin to corrupt and corrode and break apart and fall apart and so on. So we're always changing. God is unchangeable. God is immense. One of the things that's, that's mind-blowing for a human to read the Scriptures and realize things like the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. He is absolutely immense. One of the reasons why we can say God is omnipresent is because He can be everywhere all the time at the same time because of His immensity. But we're finite. We're confined. We're small. God is eternal, but we're temporal. God exists outside of time. But you and I are creatures and enslaved to the reality of time. We live inside of time. And it seems like the older you get, the faster time goes. And before you know it, the, weir- the years are just whipping by. You know, I can't wait till I get to be my dad's age. And he's, you know, he's mid-70s and he's just flying by. It seemed like we were little kids. I could just remember the last Christmas if I thought really hard. Now it seems like the last Christmas was two weeks ago and all of a sudden we're already buying presents again. We're, we're temporal and confined to time, but God's eternal. God is incomprehensible. He cannot be fully known. You have friends, you have a relationship with somebody, maybe you married a spouse, and you can know them pretty well. I can tell to a certain degree what Heather's thinking by the look on her face. Like when I'm preaching and she goes, and it means, don't you dare use me for an illustration yet again. <laughs> okay. I can tell a little bit. And we can know each other to a certain extent, but we will never know God the way that we can know each other as human beings, as, as men and women. God is absolutely holy, but we're now sinners by nature, by choice, by desire, and by habit. We're completely different. God is absolutely free. Uh, John Piper was asked, if you could describe God in one word, what would it be? And he said, free. Nothing constrains God. Nothing limits God. We are absolutely not free. We think we're so self-sufficient and self-able to stand on our own two feet. Let me tell you something. Let's put you in a box and we'll suck all the air out of the box and we'll see how self-sufficient you really are. In about 30 seconds, you'll be gasping and grasping at the door to try and get out. Maybe we'll put you in a box and we'll, we'll put, give you water but no food. After a couple of weeks, if you're still alive, you'll be definitely looking for more food. We have to have some kind of external thing to support us. But God is absolutely free. He needs nothing to sustain and support Him. But we are enslaved to support. We're enslaved to sin and we're enslaved to death. God is love. I was talking to somebody today about the fact that God is both love and loving. But we are selfish and self-satisfying. Our God works in love to give us the things that we need to supply our, our, our needs to us. All we do is try and get for ourselves as much as we can. God is good. I heard uh, Paul Washer say this. He said, the biggest problem that you face in your whole life is this one simple truth. God is good and you're not. And that's a huge problem. God is good. But as Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, if you being evil know how to give goods, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Spirit to those who ask Him? So He actually identified us as being evil, whereas God is good. God is gracious. 
But we're so contractual and so calculating. You did to me, I got to do that for you. You loan me $10, I got to do this. And everything is about fair and balance and con- calculating contracts. But God is just gracious. He gives us His unearned favor. Now all those things, all those things about God that we said, there are three attributes that emphasize the fact that God is incomprehensible. He's infinite. He's unbounded, unlimited, unmeasurable, and unsearchable. And that makes Him incomprehensible. Because if God's holiness... Now, here's something to keep in the back of your mind. We're thinking about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God is that they're not separate things. Like you could take this pulpit and take it all apart, and this is one part, and that's another part, and that's another part, and this is another part. The attributes of God are not like little parts of God you can pull off and look at and put back on. All the attributes of God, they all fit together, and they're in a sense one smooth, steadily, not changing, but one smooth ball from which every different perspective gives you a different aspect of what God is like. So when we say that God is infinite, He's unbounded, which means His love is unbounded. It means His grace is unbounded. It means other parts of His attributes there, like uh, His immenseness. It's unbounded. So what that means is no matter how much of God that you can grasp, if you spend 100,000 years trying to grasp something of the love of God, you'll never fully understand all the love of God because God being infinite and God being loving and those two fitting together means you can never get to the end of all the knowledge of God's love. You say, you know, that's kind of a discouraging, depressing thought. That means I can never really fully know God. And the answer is no, you never can fully know God. But that's not a reason to be discouraged. It's a reason for great hope and great joy because through all of the the regions, the realms, the eons of eternity... You won't run out of something to do. You're not going to be in heaven going, well, you know, I studied God's love yesterday and His grace before that. You know, I'm kind of done. What do we do now? There's like a billion years left to go and I'm stuck with nothing to do. Start playing solitaire or something with the angels. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that the fact that God is incomprehensible and infinite, it means all through the whole eons of eternity, we will still be learning new things about God. Isn't that a great thought? You, you're main, like, you know, you get to the point where you're reading a really hard book. I finished reading uh, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, written in the 1640s or something. And this guy wrote in sentences, and I'm not joking, they were like paragraph long sentences. And he had like, he would use four and five semicolons in each sentence with commas breaking up those semicolons. And you're just going, oh. And after a while, my poor chippy brain is going in, overload, like tilt, tilt, tilt. You know, I can't handle anymore. Imagine what it'll be like in eternity, perfected. And every single day we'll learn something new about God. And no matter how long we spend in eternity, which is in endless, we'll always be learning something new about God. The other incredible thing about the incomprehensibility of God is the fact that it humbles us completely. Sitting in my office and just reading through and trying to get my head around some of these concepts, there's so much at the limits of our human understanding that God is incomprehensible. And I begin to realize just how incredibly small I am. And then I remember the scripture. What is mind that what is man that you are mindful of him? To think about God 
in his infiniteness of his infinite love and his infinite grace and his infinite immensity and all those other things. And to think that he took thought for us. That he in grace considered us. He planned from before the foundation of the earth to save us and set us apart for himself. What an amazing God. And how small do we feel. And yet how loved. And how enveloped in God we feel when we start to think about that. That God chose us. He who is so immense. He needed nothing. I hear this sometimes and I just want to jump up and shout, No, you got it wrong. I hear people say, God saved you because he was lonely and he needed somebody to talk to. I hear things like that. I just go, you just you made God into a needy, poor, needy old man. That's not it at all. God didn't save us because he had to. He didn't save us because he was lonely. He saved us because he wanted to share and display the glory of his grace. Listen to what the Bible says about the infiniteness of God. In 1 Kings 8, 27, this is... Uh, Uh, I think it's Solomon speaking. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this earth, this house which I have built. In other words, all of the heavens, but not not just the heavens we can see, but Solomon says, The highest of the heavens, they cannot contain God. How much less this gold house he's built. Job 5 verse 9 He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. We look up at the the night sky and we see the stars and go, wow, this is so amazing, the beauty and the glory of the stars. And that's just what we can see. God does so much more that we can't even see. Job 11, verses 7 to 9 say this, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? They're deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the seas. In other words, there's no way you can figure it all out. He is incomprehensible. Behold, uh, Job 36, 26. Behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. In Job 37, verse 5, it says, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. The sadness, the folly of man that thinks he can figure God out. Thinks, I was talking to somebody the other day about redefining who God is. And I thought, you know what, the arrogance of man that thinks they can sit down and take the, what God's Word and start reshaping and rewriting because we want to put up a new idea about God, a new understanding of God. How arrogant of man to think that they can redefine God according to their own terms when he says God is exalted. We don't know Him. His number of His years is unsearchable. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. and His greatness is unsearchable. You can go on and on. There's a bunch more verses here, but basically you get the idea. God is absolutely infinite. He's incomprehensible, meaning He can't be fully known, but He can be known. That is not really an attribute of God. It's an inability of man to know God. Man can know something of God, but only through God's self-revelation of Himself. Listen to this. He says, Paul says in Romans 1, 19-20, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because they were deserved to? No, listen to what he says. For God made it evident to them. In other words, what we can know about God, 
What man's... You know how we said this morning about kids are born with a conscience? Well, we never got that far in the message. Never mind. I'll tell you next week. So come back next week and this will make sense. <laughs> Basically, kids are born with a conscience. Right? Take a little kid, give it a toy, loves the toys, playing with it, you walk up and just take it away from him. Right? With no rhyme or reason. And what's the kid going to scream? That's not fair. Right? They have this innate sense of conscience. The same reason a kid who steals something will hide it behind his back because he knows he did wrong. The same conscience says that when you take my toy away from me, I know that's not right and I'll cry out that's not fair. That innate sense was given to them by God. God made it evident to them since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Man, entirely on his own, cannot come to any knowledge of God, but God makes it known to him. That's the way he says, and oh, we read that already. Uh, John 1, 18. This is what uh, John says about the Lord Jesus. He said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In other words, the way we know God, the way we have any idea of who God is and what He's like, is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came with a specific reason to explain the word in the, the Greek actually is the word we get our word exegesis from. To get the meaning of behind. To understand the full meaning of. Jesus came that we might understand as much of the meaning of God as we can. We will never understand all of God, but we'll understand something of God because of who Jesus is. And because he came to reveal the Father to us. Man will never know all that there is to know about one single attribute or characteristic of God. You know, just as a side here, there's a danger in the age we live in. We're an information age, aren't we? People pay huge amounts of money. I think Poovin's business is built on the idea that people pay money for accessible information. And how information is sped through the electronic wires and YouTube and Bluetooth and Black Spider or whatever they call it nowadays. And it's all getting flown around. And we have a certain faith in knowledge. And the danger is that we can have a faith in how much we know about God. But the reality is we'll never know all that there is to know about God. We'll never know all there is to know about one single attribute of God. You take one attribute, uh, His omniscience, and try and discover everything about God's omniscience. And you will spend the rest of eternity and you'll still be writing in your notebook all the things that you learn about God's omniscience. But you know what? God has given us a way that we can know Him through His Bible. But He does something else, and I wanted to talk because it's a great way just to get your head around a little bit who God is and just how vast God is. God uses names. Who here has a name? You've all got a name. Hands up, you've got a name. Hands up if you know what your name means. Ooh, a couple of you do. What's your name mean, George? A gardener, okay. What's your name mean, Jono? What's your name mean? Do you remember? God's gift, yeah. Something like that. What's your name mean? Crooked nose. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. God's gift. <laughs> Our names mean something, right? 
Well, in the Bible, that's even more so than that. And God's names are very significant because the Hebrew language, the term for name means a sign or a distinctive mark. So what sets Puvan apart from all the guys that look like Puvan? It's his name, among other things. But that's what he would say, well, I'm Puvan. This sets me apart from everybody around me because that's his distinctive mark. It sets him apart. In Greek language, the word name or onoma is derived from a verb which means to know. So we have a name so we know who that person is. I love it. I hate it, sorry, when I meet people that I've met before and they say, hey, Nelson, how you doing? And they're talking with me and they're talking about their kids and their family and their dog. And, and I'm going... Oh, yeah, it's so good to see you again. And I can't refer to you tonight because I can't remember your name. If you walk in the door and I say, well, good morning, I don't use your name. It's probably because I sort of forgot. Yes, Ken? So that we will know who you are. It's exactly what I'm saying. So, for example, Noah means relief. Jesus means savior. Abram meant father. Abraham means father of nations. It expands that idea. And the necessity of multiple names for God is because no one name of God can fully grasp and describe who God is. And so I'm going to give you a whole list, we'll go through them quick, of all the names of God, not all, some of the names of God in the Old Testament. And they're really cool. Okay, listen up. Here we go. El, E-L, simply means the strength, power, supreme excellence and greatness expresses the idea that God is completely other than his creation. He is El. Elohim. When you hear in the Hebrew language Old Testament words with the him on the end of it, it means dual or, dual or plural. Because Hebrew has uh, singular, dual, and plural. They have three tenses. We only have two. But the him is the idea of plural. And it's lovely when you read the Old Testament scriptures, if you read them in a language or you read them in a really good critical version, like maybe the NSB, just, just saying, for example, even though Wes is not here. Uh, if you read in that version, often they'll put the noun in plural and the verb in singular. Why do you think God would do that in the Old Testament? To explain or describe in some way the Trinity. We are doing in the in inflected languages like Hebrew and Greek, the plural noun requires a plural verb. But in Hebrew they go plural noun for God and singular verb. It's the idea of three in one or plural in one. It expresses the Trinity in the way they could do it. Eloah means it stresses the fact that God is the only true and living God. He is the one to be adored and worshipped. He's the one to be reverenced with a holy fear. So in the Old Testament, if you read the Hebrew, you'll find the word Eloah, E-L-O-A-H. He's the one to be worshipped. El Elyon, meaning God Most High. He's the one who is above all things. He is the maker and possessor and ruler. He is God incomparable. There is none like our God. You read that and you stop and think, wow, there is no God like our God. I saw years ago a little skit done by some well-meaning young people. And they sort of try to describe Christianity. So they had a Jesus and a Buddha and a Muhammad. And they played like a dating game. And you can already go, oh, no. Because it basically lined up the three of them like they were competing for the person's soul. And each of the three religions gave some idea of what they were like. And I'm thinking, no, a thousand times no. Jesus cannot be compared to any other like he's one amongst other religions. 
There is only one God. He is absolutely incomparable. El Shaddai. You remember the song in the 80s, uh, Amy Grant sang El Shaddai, El Elyona, El Kakam, Kai, or something like that. I probably got it wrong. Don't worry about it. It means all-powerful one. It means all-sufficient, transcendent. It means a sovereign ruler. That's our God. El Gibor. I hadn't even heard this one until today. The God of power and might. El Roi means the God who sees. Remember uh, Hagar uh, by the well, right? And he, she, she calls God El Roi, meaning thou art the God who sees me. Sees me in my distress. Thou art the God who sees everywhere we go. Thou art the God who nothing escapes his attention. We never do something and God goes, oh, I didn't notice Hannah did that. And what's going on? Everything God sees completely. Yahweh is, you'll hear that name a lot. It's distinctively the proper name for God. If you read the Old Testament, he, Exodus 3, when God says, I am that I am. He's saying Yahweh. It's the verb to be. I am that I shall be. I am that I am. And there's a whole bunch of compound names. I'll go through them quick. How about later, Ken? Okay. Yahweh is Jehovah or Yahweh is the Lord. That's what it means. There's Yahweh Sabaoth. Anybody know what that one means? By any stretch of imagination? Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. All the hosts of God, all the armies of God, all the hosts of the angelic realm, all the hosts of the demons. Yahweh Sabaoth, that's him. Yahweh Nisi, not Nissen, Nisi. It means the Lord is my banner. Uh, one of them, when the uh, Israelites conquer a people, Moses calls the Lord is my banner. He's the one whose banner has been raised up on high because he is the conquering king. Isn't it great? You just got to love the way these old guys wrote and described God. The way God the Holy Spirit used men's language to describe himself. But you can see right away. No one name captures it all. You've got to put them all together and it gives you some idea of what God is like. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord my healer. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. That's uh, Psalm 23 all through there. Yahweh Yireh. Anybody know that one? Yireh or Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. Who knows what that means? Provide. That's right. Where you remember the story where it happened, Hannah? Do you remember where that happened? <laughs> Off the top of my head, that's okay. Remember Genesis 22 when uh, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, going to offer him as a sacrifice? The Lord will provide. And he called the name of the Lord Jehovah Jireh. Notice something else here. It's men giving names to God. Sometimes God gives his name to man. Like when he says to Moses, I am that I am. Yahweh or Hava Yahva, I think is how it actually says. He gives that name. But often it's man trying to describe and explain something about God. And Abraham says, he is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Or Yahweh Hireh. Yahweh Shalom. What does that mean? You should know that one. Beautiful name indeed. What's it mean? Anybody know? Peace, that's right. The Lord is my peace. That's amazing, isn't it? Yahweh Zarak. It means the Lord is my righteousness. 
And all those names, that's just the Old Testament. There's only a few of them. There's a whole bunch more beyond that. And what the Hebrew writers did was they used compound names. They would put Yahweh with a different name to get the idea of the Lord is something. The Lord is something else to try and understand and, and explain God. And you can see what God the Holy Spirit is doing. He's giving us all these names that help describe the incomprehensible God so that we have some way to relate to Him. God has revealed Himself to us that we might know something of Him. He's revealed Himself to us in His creation that shouts the glory of God. God made Himself known to us. The knowledge of God is like an ever-expanding upward funnel, right? Think of it, you know, those funnels you use in the kitchen or you pour oil into your car. Well, don't use the ones in the kitchen to put oil in your car because people get mad when you do that, just saying. So you have a funnel, right? And it goes up and outward. And the more you try and understand God, it's like climbing upwards in the funnel. And the higher you go in understanding God, the bigger the information, the bigger the knowledge gets. But you know what? It's possible to have all this head knowledge. And the great, great danger is if you listen to those names... They weren't based entirely upon head knowledge. They were based upon experiential knowledge. The Lord is my banner. What does he mean? Well, I simply know that God is a banner. You know, he can conquer. And I've got that information down here in my iPad. Is that what he said? No. He said, God went to battle for me and I saw God conquer my enemies. I experienced God in that sense of of conquering enemies that I couldn't conquer. But ultimately... In all this, the clearest way that we know God is through Jesus Christ. He has explained God to us. In John 1, 14 and 18, the Bible says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is higher than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He said in John 17, this is eternal life that you, they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God is incomprehensible. He cannot be fully known. But God is able to be known through Christ. i got to do this. This is, this is too much fun not to do it. I'm going to take you back to those names in the Hebrew. And I want you to see Christ in all of them. Because it's not all of them. Most of them. This is cool. L means that strength and power and supreme excellence. Christ is the strong one who defeated our enemies. Isn't that cool? So even when he spoke the name L in the Old Testament... In God's mind, it went all the way forward to Christ who would come and He would defeat our enemies. Uh, Eloah. This is a great one, especially for those who don't believe that Jesus is truly God. Eloah is used to stress the fact that God is the one, the true and living. He is to be adored and worshipped. In Hebrews chapter 1, when Jesus was brought into the world, He came into the world, the only begotten of the Father. What did the Father say about Him to the angels? He said, let all the angels of God worship Him. Let all the angels of God worship Jesus. 
meaning he is God just like the Father is God. He is Eloah. He is the one who is worthy of being worshipped. El Shaddai, the all-powerful one, the all-sufficient God. Christ is the all-powerful one who has defeated sin and death. He's been given authority. He's been made the sovereign ruler. El Shaddai, that's Christ. Because he has been given all power and all authority. And he rules and reigns on high with his Father in heaven. Yahweh Nisi, Christ is our banner. I almost told you this before when I was going through it, but I had to wait. Christ is our banner. Why? Because he's conquered. He's conquered sin and death. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord my healer. What does the Bible say in Isaiah 53 about the Lord and healing? By his stripes we are healed. He is Yahweh Rapha to us because he is the one through whom we receive healing. Not just physical healing, but spiritual and emotional healing as well. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. What did Jesus say? I'm the good shepherd. Why am I the good shepherd? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that amazing? You think, what has all this got to do with the incomprehensibility of God? Is that God cannot be fully known. If you're striving to know everything about God, you will never come to the end of that knowledge. And what it does is it drives us to the point of faith. We realize that we will only understand something of God. We will never understand it all. Like Trinity, right? You want to go nuts? Just sit down for a couple hours with a book and a pen and try and figure out the Trinity. Three persons. Yeah, one God, three persons. But you can't have three and one because it, you can't. And they're not one third, one third, one third. They're three whole persons in one Godhead. And all of a sudden you're starting to get a headache and the migraine's growing and you're trying to get your, this, your head around this idea of Trinity. And there comes a point in all of this, beloved, when we come face to face with God through Christ that we say, you know what, I understand something. He is the incomprehensible God and faith takes over and says, I trust Him for what I can't understand. God is a great God. I read that that same little book I mentioned before called um, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He makes a great statement in there. He said this. He said, The character and worth of the soul of a man can be valued by the object of its love. I'm adding, I'm not saying exactly the way he said it, but this is basically what he means. When a soul loves God, there is a value in that soul. When a soul loves murder, when a soul loves depravity, when a soul loves wickedness and evil, there is something wrong with that soul. But when the soul instead is devoted and committed to knowing and loving God, there is something very valuable about that. And you know what? I said it before and I'll say it again. We need to look at God and see who God truly is. I think one of the biggest problems facing Christianity in our day and age is the steady putting aside of biblical truth and biblical principles. Steady putting aside of who God is and rewriting scripture and rewriting a doctrine that we might have a more comfortable, a better, a more easy God to deal with. The reality is the God that we have is so amazing and so awesome and so incomprehensible and so infinite. And I can keep on using all those adjectives. But God is able to be known through Christ. 
when we have faith in him, when we come and we seek him, we know we'll find him. And we'll know we'll understand something of him. And the beautiful thing of all of eternity is we'll spend that time knowing him more. And we'll never know the end of God. Isn't that a great hope that we have? You never get bored of God. In fact, I would suggest if you get bored of God, there is something terribly wrong inside. God is that God which absolutely thrills the soul of man. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. What an amazing God we have. Amen? All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's give thanks for our day and, and uh, close in prayer. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, just to consider that He is the incomprehensible God. God who can never, you are the God who can never be fully known. But Father, we thank you, we worship you, we give, we lift up our hearts to you in joy this evening because we can know you in a small measure because of what Christ has done, because the Lord Jesus Christ has come and explained and expounded you to us that we might know you. And Father, we thank you for all of eternity that is yet awaiting us, that we will spend all that time learning evermore, and evermore that we learn will greatly thrill our hearts and our souls, and we will rejoice with a bliss that goes beyond anything this world can imagine or create, because it is a bliss and a joy and a pleasure found only in you. The psalmist said it, O God, but the pleasures that he would know at your right hand. You will give us to drink of the river of your delights. Father, I just all I can say is wow. Father, may these truths th thrill our hearts and fill our hearts with joy as we consider the Savior we have, as we consider Christ. Father, may our hearts, may our lives be spent, be devoted to knowing and understanding and walking with you, to loving you, to delighting in you, to being ever satisfied in you and you alone. Father, we cry out to you for your help. We give you thanks, O oh God, for this church. We thank you for the day that we've had here in worship and fellowship together. And Father, we ask you for your blessing. We plead with you, O oh God, for your help for this week. Lord, for those who are traveling, Lord, we think about Puvan flying up to Canberra and other places. Lord, we ask you just be with him and give him safety as he travels. Give him, Father, time that he might spend alone in part of his busy work week, enjoying some thoughts of you. Father, for all of us as we go back to work and go back to uh, busy lives, Father, we pray that we would take the sweetness of this day with us. And Father, we would enjoy precious thoughts of you and the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the week. Father, we seek your blessing again on this church. Father, again, we pray. Lord, I pray again that you would bring revival. The Father, as we focus our hearts and our minds on you in striving to understand something of you, that you would revive us, that you would kindle afresh into a hot flame our passion, our desire for you. Father, we might love you and serve you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.